I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. The joys that we celebrate this morning and will for all eternity are due to how Jesus suffered on the cross. And so as we turn our attention now to the suffering servant, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. In the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 879. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Nowhere in all the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus come through as beautifully and as brightly, as powerfully, I think, as it does here in Isaiah 53. 700 years before it happened, the Lord told the story of his son's death. And we will see in the coming weeks of his resurrection also and of the great work of justification. Right at the heart of that saving work is substitution. And that's what we see in this text this morning. Pierced and crushed in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, the loving shepherd for the rebel sheep, the exalted king in the place of his rebel subjects. And so what I want you to see as we look at Isaiah 53 and part of Isaiah 52 this morning is both a beautiful revelation of the work of Christ and also a very powerful validation of the truth of that salvation because it was written 700 years before the event. So it's a wonderful thing when you can see the gospel opened for you as a revelation and have the very positioning of it 700 years before it happened to be a validation in the midst of the revelation. And my prayer also is not only that you will enjoy the revelation, as Christ is manifest in this text, 
and that you will be strengthened by the validation because it's prophecy written so long before. But you will also, if you're here this morning and have never been persuaded that this is true, that it's worth believing, that perhaps salvation will come upon you in power this morning. That you'll find yourself irresistibly drawn out of darkness and rebellion and resistance into an affirmation and belief and submission to the Lord of glory and the suffering servants. That's my prayer as we approach this this chapter together. And I think it would be good if we stopped here just for a moment and asked God to come and, and cause those things to happen. Lord, I want Your people to enjoy You even though this is in part very gory text and was in its moment of implementation not an enjoyable thing. But You did it that our joy might be full. And I want Your people to be strengthened, Father, by seeing fulfilled prophecy. And I want unbelievers to be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the truth. And so I ask you to come by your Spirit and make these three things happen in the hearts of these people this morning. Come, Father. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. The passage is about the servant of the Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 52 starts... Behold, my servant will prosper. And so we have to ask right off the bat, who is that? And there are several possibilities from the book of Isaiah. One would be, is the servant the people of Israel? Because sometimes in the book of Isaiah, the people of Israel are called the servant of the Lord. For example, Isaiah 41, 8 says, but you, Israel, my servant, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, fear not. And so it could be that he's talking about the whole people when he says servant. Or a second possibility is he means Isaiah, the prophet, because sometimes Isaiah is called the servant of the Lord in this book. For example, Isaiah 49, 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring back Israel or Jacob to him. So there's. God's servant, Isaiah, serving the people. So sometimes the people are the servant, and sometimes Isaiah is the servant. The problem with either of those suggestions is that they won't work here in this chapter because the servant in this chapter is serving Isaiah and serving the people. You can see that in verse 4. Surely he, the servant, has borne our griefs. That's Isaiah and the people. He has carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our. So he's looking out over the, the Israelites and saying our. He's pierced through for my transgressions and your transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And so neither of those suggestions works. It's not the people. It's not Isaiah. It's somebody who's not on the scene yet, who's going to do such a substitutionary work that Isaiah and all the people who believe are going to have something remarkable and saving done for them. So who is it? Peter 
says in his first letter, they were sure. Peter quotes, uh, or I quote Peter in 1 Peter 1.11, goes like this. The prophet sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So when Isaiah spoke these things, he probably scratched his head and said, When? Where? Who, Lord? And he wasn't sure the exact way that God would go about fulfilling this suffering servant prophecy. But Peter, for example, says in his letter, By his stripes we are healed, referring to Jesus. He quotes Isaiah 53, 5. And you all perhaps remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 who had come up to worship in, in Jerusalem. He's riding his chariot home and the Holy Spirit said to Philip, join that chariot. He walks up and he hears him reading Isaiah 53. And he hops up into the chariot and he says, do you know what you're reading? He says, how can I unless somebody shows me? And then the Ethiopian eunuch asks, is the prophet speaking of himself or another? And then Luke tells us that Philip said, now Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. One other text. Jesus himself in Mark 10.45 said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That is, to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom, a substitute for many. So Jesus and Luke and Philip and Peter all believed the servant of Isaiah 53 was the Messiah. And the Messiah was Jesus. So what I want to do is try to, to take this text and open it for you so that you can see Jesus more clearly and what he has done for us in a text that describes your salvation 700 years before it was accomplished at Calvary. Now, I want to do this under five glimpses or stages in what Isaiah sees here. Let me mention them for you. Number one. Isaiah sees rebel subjects. Number two, he sees a rejected servant. Number three, he sees a ransoming substitution. Number four, he sees God restoring sight. And number five, he sees and joins, and we will too, a reverent silence before the Lord of glory. Number one, rebel subjects. Chapter 53 begins like this. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nobody or virtually nobody has believed. Remember way back in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and said, I'm a sinful man and I dwell in the midst of people of sinful lips and God cleanses him and then he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And the Lord says, go and make the heart of this people fat, for they will not listen to me. 
Isaiah's ministry basically aborted. It did not accomplish salvation for that generation. He was sent for our sake as well as their sake. Why is it? Why is it that when the gospel was preached and today is preached, it encounters so much unbelief, so much resistance, so much rebellion? The answer to that, I believe, is given in verse 6. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the rebellion. The rebellion of God's creatures. Everybody in this room was born with a rebellious heart. Everybody chose our own way. I like my own way. Just think of the weight of this. Think of the audacity of our hearts. God Almighty created every one of you for His glory. Everybody in this world He created for His glory to walk in His way. And we don't like it. We don't like people telling us what to do. We want to go our own way. And in order to not feel bad about that, the easiest thing to do is just not to think about God. That's the way most people handle that problem. The easiest way not to feel put upon by the authority of God is not to think about God. Then you can go your own way. And if you get God out of the picture, going your own way doesn't feel like rebellion. It feels like responsibility. I must be responsible for myself. So if you can just get God out of the way, and the easiest way to do that is not to attack Him. You lose if you do that. But to just ignore Him. Just turn your back, walk, and think about yourself and the world. Block God out. And then you can relax do your own thing, and the rebellion in your heart won't feel like rebellion. It will feel like responsibility. And if you can put yourself among a lot of other people that are walking that way and ignoring God and not taking His way into account, you can go your own way and feel good about it. Except a few late nights. A sudden strange ripple of pain comes across your abdomen. You pass blood. And then your own way starts to feel... Sort of inadequate. You wonder if you might have to come to terms with something bigger and longer than yourself. Not many people spend a lot of time saying, how can I avoid going astray off of God's way? How can I avoid the presumption and the pride of walking in my own way? Very few people say that. We are rebels to the This is the condition that Isaiah sees here. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. My own way. My own way. Don't tell me what to do. Everybody has felt that. That's the way we are by nature. We don't want anybody crowding our space and calling our decisions into question, or suggesting that anything fundamental about my way of doing things might have to be changed. But off! Rebellious. He 
Number two, the second glimpse. A rejected servant. Verse three. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So when God sent his servant to his rebel subjects, we hated him. We despised him. We rejected him. Now, why did we do that? I think the answer is given in verse 2. He grew up before God, before him, he grew up before God like a little tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Not much hope for this. Throw a tree like that. Don't expect much of old dry, cut off tree. He had no stately form, no majesty or glory that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, his whole demeanor, his whole style, his whole view of life, money, lust, power, prestige, forgiveness, fear, anxiety, pride, faith, his whole view of things offended us. It didn't endorse us in our rebellion. His happy poverty made us feel rotten about our love of things. His lowly and unimpressive way, hobnobbing with the outcasts and taking children into his arms and not looking at all like a king did not endorse us in our aspirations for power and reputation. His willingness to suffer for others instead of living for his own immediate comforts didn't endorse us. It indicted our love of ease. He came on the scene in such a way that he did not endorse us in our rebellion and therefore to protect ourselves and not have to change. We hated him and rejected him and pushed him away. You, you let a Jesus like that get near to you, you you're going to either change or go crazy. So you reject him. We rejected him. And despised him. We would not esteem him. Because to esteem a Jesus like that would mean we'd have to become like that. And no way are we going to be that broken and that humble and that lowly and that loving and that dependent on God. No way. And so he was a rejected servant. When that kind of servanthood meets this kind of rebellion, you get rejection, crucifixion, despising. Now, that didn't take Jesus off guard. He knew that was going to happen. He wasn't stunned. His father wasn't surprised. He came to be served, not to serve. And he came to be a ransom for many. And so the third glimpse now that Isaiah gives is of a ransoming substitute. Now, look at this in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. In verse 5, 
He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging, we are made well and whole. Verse 6, second half of the verse. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him, crush Him. That's the heart of the gospel. 700 years before it was wrought, the heart of the gospel. I remember reading this week in my devotions from Numbers. I just love this. I got to stick it in here because it's meant so much to me this week where Balaam, speaking on God's behalf for a few minutes anyway, says, there is no divination against Israel. There is no sorcery against Jacob. For the people will look upon Israel and say, what hath God wrought? And that's the way people are going to look upon the church someday when she is finished. What hath God wrought? And they're going to mean Calvary. They're going to mean the piercing through and the being crushed and the scourging. What He wrought on Good Friday. You is what He He was a ransoming substitute. Instead of collapsing under his own grief, he takes more grief, ours, upon. Instead of increasing our sorrows, which we deserved, he pulls our sorrows, our rebelling sorrows, off of us onto him and carries them. Instead of vengeance against our transgressions, He is pierced through and accepts the sword for our transgressions. All the chastisement and whipping that we deserve, He said, I will take it. You get well. You get well now. You know, this is so beyond us. I need to say here, you don't have to understand this in order to be drawn into it any more than you need to understand or I need to understand how a computer works in order to write love poems on my word process. They just are there. And they're, I think she likes them. And I don't understand how this works. I don't ever intend to understand how it works. (laughs) And this transaction that allows God to reckon your sin to be on Jesus, you won't get to the bottom of that. But you can bathe in it. You can play in it. You can live in it. You can write poems about it. You can die with it and you can live forever on it. Glimpse number four. That's not the whole gospel. There's more. The gospel does not save until it is seen, loved, believed, grasped. But you know what? Rebel hearts won't 
believe. Rebel subjects hearing that gospel, seeing that kind of Jesus in our rebellion, wanting to go our own way, back off. No way. Where's faith going to come from? Look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 52. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Verse 1 of chapter 53 says, scarcely anybody believes this message. The arm of the Lord hasn't been revealed. But verse 15 of chapter 52 says, it's going to be revealed. God is not going to let the death of his servant abort in its saving purposes. He's not going to let all that grand work of a ransoming substitute for rebel sinners and subjects go in vain. With nobody believing anywhere or being saved, he's just not going to let that happen. He's going to bear his holy arm. He's going to sprinkle the nations. He's going to open the eyes and the kings and the nations will see it and believe. He will not allow a half gospel in the world that aborts in its saving purposes. Now, Paul in the New Testament knew this. It was the rock bottom foundation of his whole ministry in Romans 15, 21. He took heart and had confidence in frontier missions on the basis of this text in Isaiah 52:15. He quotes it. Here's the way he says it. I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named. In other words, he only wanted to talk to totally unchanged rebels. I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ is already named, but... As it is written in Isaiah 52:15, those who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul took that as a promise that undergirded his whole mission. I will not labor as a missionary in vain because Isaiah 52:15 says the arm of the Lord is going to be revealed, and those who have not seen will see. And hearts that didn't understand will understand. God will do it. He will not leave it up to man to decide how many get into heaven, if anybody. The gospel of Isaiah is the gospel of Jesus. The good news, both that the rejected servant has become the ransoming substitute for rebel subjects and that this great work of salvation at Calvary will not abort in unbelief. But God will also, and this is the other half of the good news, God will also bear his arm and open the eyes of the nations. Isaiah 52:13 says, Behold, my servant shall prosper. If you have an NIV, it says, My servant shall act wisely. That's not enough. Where that word is used in the Old Testament, in all the forms that it's used here, it means act wisely unto success. 
My servant will succeed. My servant will prosper. He will act so wisely and perform such a magnificent act of substitutionary atonement that he will succeed in his saving purposes. So God sent the servant and he will make sure that people see the servant. Which leaves one last step in Isaiah's argument. When God sprinkles the nations, verse 15, when he sprinkles the nations with the blood of the servant, and he grants kings, it says here, he grants kings on earth to see what they had not been told and to understand what they had not heard, the result is going to be, according to verse 15, the kings will shut their mouth because of him. Up till now, they are despising him, spewing out words of contempt, hatred, rebellion, rejection, mockery. Witness Herod, Pilate, Nero, Festus, Felix, just So quick you expect to make me a Christian. Those kings are going to have their mouth And it's over. And onto their faces they go. Why? Because of verse 13. Chapter 52. Behold, my servant will prosper and he will be He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And the kings of the earth will be silent before the Lord of glory. Yeah, he was a suffering servant for a season. He was despised. He was rejected. He suffered. He took it all on. He did not open his mouth, but went like a sheep to the slaughter. Sure. But mark it, he's the Lord of glory. He is high. He is exalted. He is lifted up and the kings of the earth will be silenced. Reverent silence. He did not count equality thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted And given him a name which is above every name. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. Almighty God.
and holy, majestic Jesus Christ, we bow before you as we worship now. We shut our mouths. We renounce rebellion. We renounce self-justification. We renounce self-endorsement. We confess our sins and our tremendous need for a suffering servant to die as a ransoming servant and substitute for us rebel subjects. O Lord, restore our sight. And bring us to reverent silence. Work, Father. Come. Fill us with worship to the Son. In His name we pray.